scriptures can communicate different meetings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances, nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life. When I stumble, I will keep getting up relying on the grace and enabling power of Jesus Christ. I will stay in my covenant with him and work through my questions by study of God's word, by faith, and with the help of the Holy Ghost whose guidance I trust. I will seek his spirit every day by doing the small and simple things. This is my path of discipleship. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. The little theme of this lesson is prepare ye the way of the Lord. And a lot of it is about repentance and a mighty change of heart. This lesson also covers three chapters that are about kind of the same thing, but in the different books, uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. And it's kind of cool to see how each one of them is a little bit different, that they say things a little bit differently, or at least approach the the story in different ways. It's kind of interesting that we have the Gospels that work that way because John doesn't even mention this part. And that's why, at least not to this detail, and that's why I think it's good that we have all these other examples. We have Matthew and Mark and Luke who also contributed their their story, their portion. You're mentioning repenting. And it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 3, very beginning it says in those days came john the baptist preaching in the wilderness of judea and saying repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and um reading a little bit about what he meant there uh the the greek word metanoia is translated here as repent and it means to affect a change of heart or mind so it's not just like repent like he's calling people to just stop doing what they're doing it's more like it's time to change seem to be uh, a better people than we have been and he's preparing the way because when christ comes he gives them the new law right and so it's not just like stop doing bad things it's also like look at how you can be an overall better person look at how you might be able to approach life in a different and better way and you know he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail obviously in these scriptures about what John's exact message is, other than it's time to change and I'm preparing the way for the Messiah, right? Like you mentioned, you know, John, Mark, and uh, Matthew, they're, they're eyewitnesses. And it's, and if I think about the scriptures, about their accounts, you know, you can kind of glean like what stood out to them, what was important to them. Um, Overall, the, the message and the events are kind of the same, but there were different specific things that stood out to each one of them. Um, 
in with John, for example, he was very much it seems very impressed on his mind. Uh, well, Matthew, I mean, Matthew, it was John the Baptist and his interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees mm. and that approach to him. And then John the Baptist's remark about in verse seven of Matthew three. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you know. Yeah, um, that part about about the generation of vipers. I was reading a thing by Elder McConkie, and he said, um, "Generation of vipers is an evil and wicked group who, by their poisonous opinions and corrupt influence, were destroying the religious health of the nation." So he was calling them out for approaching the religion and faith in the wrong way, doing it in a way that was corrupting uh, the truth and making it more about status, making it more about um, politics, all of that. And um, later on in verse nine, well, he says in verse eight, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. He's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, calling them to repentance. And he says, and not, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And uh, James E. Talmadge in Jesus the Christ, he said, so Judaism held that the posterity of Abraham had an assured place in the kingdom of the expected Messiah, and that no proselyte from among the Gentiles could possibly attain the rank and distinction of which the children were sure. John's forceful assertion that God could raise up from the stones of the riverbank children to Abraham meant those who heard that even the lowest of the human family might be preferred before themselves unless they repented and reformed. Um, basically, it means that even if you you had a descendancy from Abraham and you could prove your genealogy and all of that, that that had a lot less to do than your willingness to repent and to change and to be more like the Savior, like the Messiah was going to teach. And I often think this is incredibly relevant to us today because a lot of times we think of ourselves as a member of the church as having some privileged position over people in the world, you know, that's like, well, because I am a member of the church, I have this special knowledge or special privileged station that maybe other people don't. We are in the world, but not of the world, you know, or even because I have pioneer ancestry or because I have whatever that I am somehow special. And basically, John is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into thinking that you are somehow different because of your genealogy or because of your heritage in the gospel, right? You are, as an individual are still accountable to God for what you do and what you don't do. And I think that that message extends to us today. It's great to have an idea of uh, the heritage that members of the church have brought from the past. Even if you don't have pioneer ancestry, to be able to look at that and say, we as a church are a faithful people, that's great. But what are you doing, right? And what, how, how do you maintain your discipleship even beyond all of that? Yeah, and it's it's something to think about because one you you need to remain humble. You know, all of these things, all that was given to the Israelites, to the Jews, they have a tremendous heritage in scriptures and prophecies and promises that they were expected to look forward to and prophets that uh, like Isaiah 
would mention, you know, his hands stretched out continuously, trying to redeem his people, trying to invite him back like a, like a hen invites her chicks or gathers her chicks. And there's all of that. But if we take that, any of these blessings of the Lord, we make it about ourselves when we're prideful. And the problem with the pride is that it can be used as a way to take principles that Christ wants us to share with others and that lead to compassion and kindness and charity, the pure love of Christ, and we use it to aggrandize ourselves, uh, to lull ourselves in a false sense of security, I think is what the scripture says, you know. And so it's a balancing act because on one hand, we are special, but so is everybody. And and we we should value our heritage and our ancestors and respect and, and revere some of their great faithful things that they have accomplished. But on the other hand, is if it leads us to think ourselves better than others or to think that somehow we get a shortcut to the tree of life you know we don't have to hang on to the iron rod that we're on the express lane or, or we're more secure you know than others or whatever then that's a way that satan uses blessings in our lives to tempt us to to not maintain a broken heart and a contrite spirit or have these fruits worthy of repentance you know that, that john the baptist encourages us yeah, and then um, after after all of that, he's telling them, you know, that people need to be baptized by water and by the Spirit. And um, in verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And John's first thing is like, I shouldn't, he recognizes that he should be baptized, but he's like, really, I should be baptized by thee, because he sees him as a, like a, a pure person, you know, uh, without sin. And verse 15, And Jesus answered, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So he he was like, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And I think it's interesting that he says that. It just goes to prove that he was not, just because he was perfect, does not mean he was above the laws of God. He himself had to continue to follow them. And that gives us the perfect example. We ourselves, knowing that we are not perfect, have even more necessity to follow the laws of God strictly as well. If the Savior, who didn't need to, did it anyway, then what would be our excuse to be like, oh, I don't need that or whatever, you know? Um, I don't think that that would be something that we'd be able to get away with. I find it interesting that in all of these accounts, you you learn something a little bit different. Like in... In, in Luke 3, um, in verse 22, when Christ is baptized, it says the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven. It says, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So it, this one, it, it also makes it seem like, like the Holy Ghost defended, descended upon him, and it was like a dove. It was gentle, you know. Where before I used to think that it was like a ghost dove, came. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and this one kind of makes it seem like it's it was more metaphorical, you know. 
and then um and then in this one we learned that christ was 30 years of age and then in the mark one it's interesting because it says in verse 10 it says straightway coming out of the water he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descended upon him and there came a voice from heaven saying thou art my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness so now you get a sense that oh these events jesus going from his baptism to fasting and praying in the wilderness happened fairly quickly there was something that that was very interesting in verse 13 it says he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of satan and was with wild beasts and angels ministered unto him you know we'll 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 i think later on in other uh lessons we'll touch more about the temptations of satan to jesus while he fasted 40 days in the wilderness but it wasn't just jesus went to the wilderness to suffer he went to be ministered to or and to and to learn and to kind of prepare himself to begin his ministry you know? yeah kind of going back to the the dove because i remember as a youth and maybe even as like a, a young man returned from a mission or whatever being taught that different things about that like that it was the spirit that people perceived as a dove or that it was a literal dove that was the spirit was in it or that it was the spirit that just I don't know the best way to describe it was a dove you know it was like all these different attempts at understanding how that went this is another quote by McConkie he said Joseph Smith said the sign of the dove was instituted before the creation of the world as a witness for the Holy Ghost the Holy Ghost is a personage and is in the form of a personage the Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove but the sign of a dove was given to John to signify the truth of the deed it thus appears that John witnessed the sign of the dove that he saw the Holy Ghost descend in bodily shape of the personage that he is, and that the descent was like a dove, which that gives a lot more clarity to it, right? And I think that it's interesting that you think back about when doves are present, when they're mentioned in the scriptures, um, when Noah was on the ark and sent out um, a bird, you know, and it came back. And then we've got all these kind of instances when doves are used as a symbol of, of God. And in this instance, it distinctly helps us understand that the nature of the Godhead, that you have Christ that's in the water being baptized. You have a voice from heaven saying, either, as it says in Matthew, I believe, this is my beloved son, or in the other two, where it says, thou art my beloved son, more directly to him. Um, but you've got him there in the water, the voice from heaven, and then this descent of the Holy Ghost. And when we talk about a trinity or the the attempts at describing how the godhead works by by man over the years have been you know they're they're all one and they're nothing and they're everywhere and they're nowhere and you know and it's like well here they certainly seem to have specific roles right and they're three distinct beings that carry out those roles in this instance and i think that helps us understand it maybe better than a lot of other stories in the scriptures yeah that that makes good sense um one of the things that I think I found interesting in this lesson. Uh, I always try to think of the sections, you know, and why they are in certain order or why they include some things and stuff. But this one, that it it really at the end it emphasizes that 
our understanding of the Godhead, and that the Godhead is three distinct beings. Yeah, Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 22. It says, the Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's. The Son also, meaning Jesus Christ. But the Holy Ghost is not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost cannot dwell in us. And <clears throat> one of the things I think about is, like, what is a Godhead? You know, if it's like the governing council, the first presidency of heaven, kind of. Um, and you have God the Father, who's kind of like the executive. You have the Son, who's kind of, you know, I don't know how to... I don't want to put business terms to this, because I think it cheapens it, because nothing compares to how they, they function. And then, um, but the Holy Ghost, it's interesting because Christ continuously tells us to seek the Holy Ghost. And even John the Baptist would say, you know, there's, I can baptize you by water, but there's someone who will come to baptize you by fire. And, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, you know, we've heard many talks and even prophets saying sentiments like, might be the greatest gift that we can have, you know, is having the Holy Ghost with us. So I, I don't know, I, I was thinking about that as I was reading this, these chapters um, and thinking that there's various beliefs out there that, that God the Father and the Son are like one and the same, that the Holy Ghost is also like that they're one, that the Godhead means they're all one. They're just kind of in different phases or something. But a core belief that has been restored through the restoration and revealed through modern revelation, actually it's in the scriptures, that they're three distinct beings and they have distinct functions. And it's funny because blasphemy against everyone is kind of forgiven except the Holy Ghost. And I find that interesting because it's almost like it's the bridge to bring someone who is completely perfect and someone imperfect to the same understanding. Well, the the expression of of baptism and being by water and in fire. So the the method of baptism by immersion in water is symbolic of death and resurrection. It's also symbolic of like cleaning someone, right? Like a, a purification of the outside. But the fire, if you think about when fire is used for purification, it's usually in like metal or something like that where you're trying to basically separate the pure aspects from the impurities that are in it. When you mine any kind of ore, whether it's gold, silver, or whatever, and you melt it down, the whole purpose is to burn out the stuff that's not good. And so you get this kind of outside and inside idea, like you're cleaning the outside and then purifying the inside. And that's only done through the spirit. And it's an experience where someone is no longer desiring to do evil, right? We hear that a few times in the scriptures when someone converts that they no longer had the desire to want to do bad things. Like, we all kind of have our pet sins that we do, the things that are kind of hard to let go of or that we're like, eh, it's not really that big a deal, you know? And it's not that we desire to do them, but we kind of just like, eh, it's not that bad, right? And the the job of the Holy Ghost is to go in and say, yeah, it's not that bad, but you could be better. You don't have to do that. And you can you can let that go and look what you could be like if you let those things go, right? It's to encourage us to, to knock out those last few impurities of our lives and to be uh, sanctified. 
someone once said that it's kind of unfortunate that we only really get one baptism, right? That experience of being baptized. But then you look at it and you say, but we also get the sacrament every week. And we also get reminders from the Holy Ghost to to improve ourselves all the time. And that baptism and confirmation is only the beginning. It should be a, a core memory that we have at whatever age we get it. That reminds us of what it felt like to be clean and to be pure and to have a fresh start. So that when we do take the sacrament or whatever, we get a chance to feel that again and remind ourselves, these are the covenants I've made. This is what I'm working on. And I'm trying to, to purge out those last impurities in who I am. And it may take, it will take my entire lifetime. But as long as I'm on that path and as long as I'm allowing the spirit to work in me, I, I'm doing the right thing, right? Yeah, I I think it's interesting. The fact that every, when we, when we create a covenant, which is, you know, like a, two-way contract that we make with the Lord. Uh, I think President Nelson has, has really taught us recently that it is a contract and a covenant, but he sets the conditions, not us. And, and, and as we live the covenant path or stay on the covenant path, one of the things that that means is that we're renewing those covenants. And when we renew those covenants, they're the maximum power of that covenant isn't in the initial ordinance, you know, like the day you were baptized or the day you were sealed or the power of the Holy Ghost makes it so that covenant gets stronger and stronger and more refining and more powerful the more we renew it because we're getting closer and becoming and becoming sanctified, retaining a remission of our sins. There's the moment where we are cleansed but it's almost like can you stay in the remission of your sins can you stay in the covenant path can you continue to be sanctified and and it's a different way of looking at things because that's not how contracts kind of work when in, in our earthly society right right we kind of have a contract oh i'm going to buy a car but imagine if you made a contract to buy a car and every week you had to renew that contract and that car kept getting better and better <laughs> Every time you show up, the Lord would be adding. Now you get seat warmers. Now it's got four-wheel drive. Now it's got better paint. You know. Now it, you know, and and that's kind of how our covenants are. It's not. Are we? You know, we we get something precious, and then through our fallen nature, we ruin it. And thank goodness we have the sacrament. You know, it's more like we are ruined and fallen. And as we do the best with what we have we get something better and better and it keeps building little by little by little you know and um i don't know i just i just thought you know this this there's been a lot of more talk recently about staying on the covenant path what does that mean there's a lot of talks and things but as we read the scriptures and you look at christ he said the example that even he took great benefit from covenant covenanting with God and he knew that you know even though we'd like to say he didn't need it he he was perfect but maybe there's something more than right and wrong or imperfect and perfect maybe there's just a greater power tying ourselves to God even when even if we're as pure as Christ and he gave us the example and so if he says even I need to be humble bring forth fruits meet for repentance you know 
you know, even he, then how much more do we need to follow the same pattern and not become like Pharisees and Pharisees and oh, you know, I've, and get on our modern Remy Umptums. I'm so thankful that I have the gospel and I'm not ignorant like all these other people, you know, because <laughs> that's very common, I think, in our pride cycles that we go through. In our relationship with the Savior, he looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how he chose his apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow him, and I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, hope, and charity. The commandments and covenants he offers you are not tests to control you. They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you.